God made everything and everyone. He even made Fidel Castro. That's what my abuelos, or grandparents, Ana and Julian Espinosa, always taught me. That meant the revolution was God's doing, too. At the very least, he allowed it to happen. When I was a boy, that made no sense to me. I wanted to know if we were being punished or tested. Nobody could tell me for sure. Abuela Ana wasn't complaining. She never complained about anything. She merely observed that God didn't miss a beat. We Cubans might have felt that he had abandoned us, but that wasn't true. Nah, it was the rest of the world that had forgotten about the people of Cuba. That's what Abuela Ana said, and she should know, because even before Castro came to power, when he overthrew the dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista, life had been hard for my family. Maybe Cuba's problem and ours started with sugarcane. Sugar is the lifeblood of Cuba, and the central province of Las Villas, where my people come from, is the heart of sugarcane country. But farming sugarcane is brutally hard work. Both of my grandfathers had begun toiling under the Caribbean sun before they hit puberty, hacking at the tough canes with machetes, slapping insects, watching out for snakes, and hoping their exhausted neighbor's aim didn't go awry. In the old days, this was slave work. Each of my grandfathers dreamed of leaving as soon as he could, in search of a better life. Only my maternal grandfather, Abuelo Julian, managed to do that when he put down his machete and left the cane fields in the farming town of Rodas in Las Villas in 1918. My other abuelo, Alfonso Calcines, was a sharecropper in the town of Cumanayagua. He and my abuela Petra had 17 children, 12 of whom survived childhood. My father, Rafael, whom everyone called Felo, was her youngest son. They rented a small house on land owned by a wealthy Spaniard. In return for their labor, they were allowed to keep part of the sugar crop. This provided them with their basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter, but nothing else. When my father was eight, one of his brothers was killed in a shooting accident and my grandfather died suddenly of grief, probably either a heart attack or an aneurysm. He left his family nothing but the clothes on his back and a few pieces of furniture. The wealthy Spaniard had no use for the rest of the family, so he told them to get off his land and make sure that they didn't take anything that didn't belong to them. Even the machete was his. Abuela Petra had a brother in the city of Cienfuegos, he offered to take in the family until they could get back on their feet. So one day, Abuela Petra and her remaining children, in addition to the one who was shot, four others had died of childhood maladies, walked 30 miles along the dusty roads of rural Cuba until they arrived at their new home. Cienfuegos was called Casicasco de Jagua in the 18th century when it was founded. Then, Fernandina de Jagua in the 19th century, and finally, Cienfuegos, after a Spanish capitán, general. But its nickname has always been La Perla del Sur, the Pearl of the South. The buildings are well-constructed and elegant. Cienfuegos boasts the most geometrically perfect street plan in Cuba, perhaps in all of the Caribbean. It's said that one can shoot an arrow through the heart of the town without ever striking a building. Before Castro came to power, the port bustled with ships sailing under every kind of flag. A majestic Spanish fort, El Castillo de Jagua, still dominates the turquoise waters of the bay. 
Some members of both the Calcinas and Espinosa tribes eventually ended up in the barrio or neighborhood of Glorytown. My parents met when my mother was 14, my father 21. One of my mother's sisters, Violeta, was my father's neighbor. It was during one of my mother's frequent visits to see her sister that my father noticed her and began to think about settling down. Felo had already been laboring for years on the docks, where he and his brothers had earned reputations as tireless workers. Decent paying jobs for uneducated, untrained men were scarce, and they got used to defending their positions with the only means of arbitration they had, their fists. But if another laborer collapsed under the brutal sun, as was common, one of the Calcinus brothers would be there to carry the fallen man's load as well as his own. This way, although dockhands were paid by the load, the fallen man would receive his full pay at the end of the day.